and uh, grandfather, his son Ryan, who's now about 40, has spent many hours farming it also. And I don't know how many generations really goes back in their family. It's a large farm, larger than we have around here, like, you know, in Illinois, it's 2,500 acres, you know, those kind of things. And it's beautiful soil. I, I go there and I wish I could just get an acre of it and bring it home, because my yard is rock, isn't yours? And it's just black and lush soil. Well, it's been a thriving uh, family, successful business, uh, mostly corn, soybeans. Um, after my brother-in-law served in the infantry in Vietnam, he came back and he went to the University of Illinois and he got a degree in agriculture. His son did the same thing many years later. I mean, these people want to know farming. They want to know the best they can possibly do. They've always wanted to be intelligent about their farming. You know, and people who know all the latest techniques, who have the latest equipment to farm with. And uh, so he studies these farming magazines and journals, like my brother studies medical journals. I mean, it's like this guy is into this. And uh, thankfully, he's retired now and not having to spend so much time with it. But, but what I noticed was that no matter what he learned, no matter the technologic or scientific advances of farming, you know, and the equipment, uh, amazing, amazing machines that they have there, no matter what, he still had to wait on God. He still had to wait on God to supply the rain and the sunshine because he couldn't do that. He couldn't make anything happen. He could set it up. He could work hard. He could devote hours and hours and thousands and thousands of dollars towards it. But in the end, he's like the farmer who has an acre and he's planting by hand. You wait on God. You wait on God to deliver. This is the image that James Oak begins our next passage with as we study the book of James together. James chapter 5, starting verse 7. And this image of the farmer of him out in his field, and and he may have an uh, image you'll see here of a, a seed planter, you know, that can plant 12 rows at once. My brother-in-law's got one that plants 16 at once. You know, it's like, this is crazy stuff. But in the end, end of the day, pray to God. You say, God, please bring the sun. God, please bring the rain. What does that mean for us to wait on the Lord? What does it mean for us to be like this farmer? What a powerful, powerful image, picture that James has painted here. Let's go to James 5. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, we're going to go back today. We're going to kind of break this into three little sections here. First is verses 7 and 8, then verse 9 by itself, and then verses 10 and 11 together. So part one is verses 7 and 8. Let's read those again. Be patient then, brothers, until you see the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, need to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James says, see how the farmer waits. 
See how he waits patiently for the rains to come, both spring and autumn. Farmer can be patient in laboring because the Lord has promised these rains. God says, I cause my rain to fall on both the good and, and the evil. Year after year, the rains keep coming. Now, there may be a rare occasion when a, a drought occurs for some significant period of time. Farmer falls back on what he already has in the barn. But most of the time, almost every year, this harvest is predictable, whether it's great or small, better than the year before or less than the year before. The harvest is predictable because God says, I will bless, I will be there, and you will receive what you need. So the farmer patiently works. He puts out the seed. He spends the money. He invests and waits for that return. You too, Christian brother or sister, you who are under persecution, you who are caught in various trials and tribulations, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is nearer, nearer than it's ever been. Please notice that the farmer is still working. Patience is not passivity. Patience is not inactivity. Patience is not being lazy, expecting God to do everything. No, patience in the Lord is trusting God to do what only God can do. And we must still do everything that we can do to help ourselves. But what we can do is not enough. It's never enough. And so we depend on God. We trust in God. We must still do everything we can to help ourselves. Just as we have trusted God, however, to save us by His grace, so we trust Him with every other aspect of our lives. And this is the lesson of this passage. And then James goes to verse 9, part 2. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, this seems distinct from the rest. In fact, some commentators want to say, why did he insert this here? This doesn't have anything to do with the rest. Some commentators say, you know, this, this was like a, a, a random thought that James just throws in here. It doesn't have anything to do with patience. But if you look at it deeper, I believe it does. And I'll show you why. Don't grumble against one another. Instead, talk to the Lord. This is not a separate thought unrelated to the command to be patient. This is James' application of what he has just said. The one application that he makes, although there could be many. The grumbling he writes about is the kind of groaning or complaining that places blame on someone else. And when do we do that? When we're frustrated. When we are impatient. When we are struggling with our trials and troubles and maybe persecution. And then we seem to have this ability to start lashing out at the people around us. We get short-tempered. We become quick to criticize. And we have a tendency to run off at the mouth whenever we're irritated or tense or under pressure. When things aren't going our way, then we, we say things we wish we hadn't said. And James says, don't do that. Don't talk to other people. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Talk to the Lord about this because the Lord is standing at the door. When you're frustrated, you want everybody to know about it, don't you? You want to grumble and mumble and moan and complain. It's almost like we don't mind our pain as much if we get to complain about it. You know, it makes it a little easier to endure because I'll get to tell everybody and they'll feel sorry for me. and They'll come alongside me and help me and whatever. What about you? You want everybody to know the bad day that you're having? How do you deal with your problems? When you get up in the morning, do you rise and shine or do you rise and whine? 
You know, how does this affect your attitude? How does this affect your day-to-day experience when the troubles are still there and they're still hammering you day after day? Do you start being the complainer? Do you start being the negative person? People don't want to be around you because your your troubles are, are just worn out there in your sleep. You know, but everybody can see this. Everybody can experience it. I want them to feel as sorry for me as I feel for myself. The judge is standing at the door. Why does James say that? Well, I thought of two things. Maybe helpful to you. Two thoughts about the judge seeing what we're doing here. And, you know, we got problems and we complain and we criticize and we condemn others. First of all, we need to remember what James has already said. We're not the judge. The judge is standing at the door. We're not the judge. He's already said to us back in James 4.12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. It's not you. There is one who is able to save and destroy. But you, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? So that's one point he's making. You're not the judge. Don't criticize. Don't condemn other people. Worry about your stuff. The second thing I think he's saying is this. The judge is standing at the door. Your answer is right at the door. Not to talk to other people, not to complain, not to criticize, but not to talk to God, or to talk to God rather than other people. The answer is God. It's right in front of you. The answer is your relationship with Jesus. And if you've got struggles, if you've got troubles, if you have persecution, that's the one you should talk to about these things, not to other people. It doesn't help you to complain. It doesn't help you to grumble to other people or about other people. But if we take our trouble up with God, He alone can do something about those troubles. Our relationship with Jesus doesn't have to be all neat and tidy and polite. You know, some people think the only way I can pray to God is this very polite thing, very very uh, nice formal thing. Get to get all the these and thous in there. So i got to make sure that, you know, I'm very respectful. But when you read the prayers of the Bible... If you read the prayers of the book of Psalms, are they like that? you got David going and taking God to test. God, where are you? Why don't you step in and do something about this? Why, why do you let me suffer day after day and year after year? And he's complaining. He's putting his complaint before God. And that's what James is encouraging here. You don't need to talk to other people about all these things. Talk to God. And if you have a complaint, carry it to God. He's got big enough shoulders for that. He can take that in stride. He can hear you. He knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. He knows the frustration. He knows the feelings that you're having. So we need to talk to God about our troubles rather than whine and complain to everybody else. If you don't grumble and complain about your troubles, do you internalize your problems? That's another issue. That's another thing. I've got all these struggles and you just start carrying them inside you and they're like a poison inside of them. They're just bubbling up inside of you, creating all kinds of issues for you internally. Do you eat your problems? Do you keep them inside? Do you maybe even blame yourself for what someone else has done to you? Sometimes I, I see that, you see that in people, you know, that, that, that they have been hurt, they have been abused, they have been hurt uh, by someone else and they somehow get to feeling that they caused that that they deserve that and they get sick and and they have all kinds of issues because of that. James is saying, you're not the judge and you're not responsible for these other things. Don't internalize them. Talk to God about it. Don't try to solve your problems on your own. 
Don't try to carry around a burden that you were not meant to carry. A burden that you're not able to carry. Instead, talk to the Lord. And then there's the final part of this passage, verses 10 and 11. He says, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, James says, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about in his life. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Learn from the prophets. Learn from Job. There are three elements to both of their experiences. First of all, there is suffering. Their lives were not easy. They suffered a lot simply because they were trying to live a godly life or share God's message with other people. They persevered, secondly, through their suffering. They didn't give up. They didn't say, well, this is too much. I'll go somewhere else. I can serve somebody else. It won't be so difficult. They persevered through what God had called them to do. And then thirdly, they were blessed by God as they persevered, as they continued to serve him. Now, the prophets, you you could easily come up with different people. I thought of Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet. He's called that because everywhere he went and preached for God, people didn't want to hear him. They didn't want what he had to say because it was a message uh, of judgment on them. And God was saying, wake up, get things right in your heart with me, and then I'll spare your nation the destruction I'm bringing upon you from outside. Everywhere he went, that was Jeremiah's message. And for 40 years, this man is preaching that. People are throwing him down in a pit. They're trying to kill him, and they're, they're not feeding him. They're making his life miserable. And he's called by God to keep preaching to people who didn't hear, want to hear what he had to say. Or I thought of Elijah. Elijah has these marvelous experiences like defeating the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel in the next breath. He's running away from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel because they're so wicked and they want to kill him. And he's out complaining to God somewhere because of, of how people are treating him. And all I did, I just did what you asked me to do. I stood up for you. And I thought of Joseph, the, the younger brother. And he was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And he had these visions of what God was going to do to save his people. And he was, you know, in the middle of those visions... But no one else wanted to hear that. And so he suffered for many years. Had a very difficult life for a long time. And through it all, he trusted God and waited for God to do what only God could do. And then you think of Job. Example of Job. He had done nothing to cause all of his troubles. He was a a righteous, faithful man. He's not perfect, but he's living as righteously as anybody on the face of the earth. And yet God brings trouble to his life as a test. And his friends are quick to criticize him, quick to tell him, what you need to do is repent of your grievous sins and get your heart right with God. Get straightened out with God and everything will be okay. And Job said, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to declare. I don't know what to repent of. And through all of that, he never lost his confidence in God. Remember that statement Job makes? He says, though he slays me, yet I will serve him. If he takes my very life, I will still trust in him. And when the outlook was bad, he looked up. How can somebody keep doing that? Well, they do that because they have hope. They have hope, spelled H-O-P-E. And what does hope stand for? It stands for holding on, praying expectantly. That's where you have to live. Your confidence is not in yourself. Your confidence is in God. 
Micah said in Micah 7, 7, he says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, my God, will hear me. Micah 7, 7. And so this morning, where do you need to have patience? I, you know, I don't know all about your life. I don't need to know, but God does. If you have an uncontrollable circumstance in your life right now, maybe it's a difficult job situation. Maybe you've even lost your job. Maybe you've had some kind of financial reversal that is threatening your existence beyond your control. You don't know what to do about this. Maybe you've been diagnosed with an incurable illness or a long-term illness. You're never going to be done with this. It's going to be with you the rest of your life. Whatever the doctor has said. Maybe you've got an unchangeable, frustrating situation. Or maybe even unchangeable, frustrating person in your life. The Lord says, be patient. The Lord's coming is near. At the end of our text, James says something that's pretty amazing. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Full of compassion is an interesting phrase in Greek because it's the only place in the Bible where it's used. Underline it if you have your Bible there. Full of compassion. Commentator George Stulak says, James places unique emphasis on this picture of God by introducing a term used nowhere else prior to or within the New Testament. Full of compassion. This ultimately is the source of assurance by which we can be patient. That is God. And then he goes on. He says, what will it look like when we practice Christian patience? It will look like the prophets who kept speaking and like Job who kept believing in suffering and perseverance. With this specific assurance, God will bless. He can be counted on. You can be faithful in that. God will bless. It may not be today. It may not be next week. It may not be next year. But God will bless. This is the message, Stulak says, of grace. And God gives good gifts because he is full of compassion and mercy. And so, as we think about patience, as we think about our lives, and we struggle with our difficulties and our trials and our troubles, I want to leave you with this thought. God is full of compassion. We need to trust Him. We have a God who is bigger and stronger and more capable than any being in this universe. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how big God is? Have you thought about His ability? Have you thought about His knowledge? Have you thought about His awareness? His size and strength and power are so big that they are beyond our ability to comprehend or even appreciate. And you know, you're, just, you're just staggered. You're like, wow, I got a, I got a glimpse of that but I I didn't even get it. I didn't get it all. I I can't get it all. And do you know what the Scripture says this big God is filled up with? He's filled up with compassion. He is full of compassion for you and for me. God is filled with compassion and love and grace. God's desire is to bless us. His desire is to bless us, His children, when we Trust in Him. And God's grace is the proof. God's grace is the proof that God wants to bless us because when we didn't deserve salvation, when we didn't deserve forgiveness, when we didn't deserve eternal life, He gave them anyway. That's because that's His nature. That is His character. That is His desire 
He is full of compassion. And He loves us and gives us what we don't deserve. Romans 8.28 is a powerful verse that many of you know. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. This is a promise that we count on. This is God's desire, our good. And He works toward that purpose through every circumstance of our life. In any circumstance, in every circumstance, God is working. So be patient. Because He wants to bless you. I don't know what kind of problems you're going through, but regardless of the problems you're going through, financial, relational, health, God is working through those problems and circumstances. And He's going to bless you. Be patient. Trust in Him. His desire is to bless His children when He sees us putting our confidence in Him. You know, the other day I was reading in my devotions in Matthew, and a couple other places, but in Matthew... And as I was going through that, I hit upon a day in the life of Jesus. Just one day, but day and a half. Matthew 14. I'm not going to read it all to you right now, but it's Matthew 14, 13 through 36. I have a place to write that down. Go back and read that passage sometime. I'm just going to summarize what happens. I want to tell you what happens in this day in the life of Jesus, and I want you to see what happened to Jesus But I also want you to see how Jesus responded. What did Jesus do when these things happened? Where was his heart demonstrated through all of these various experiences and situations? Can we see into the heart of Jesus? Can we see what his desire was in this day in the life of Jesus? The day began with Jesus learning that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Not a great beginning to a day. He found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by King Herod, and he was the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. He was the one that announced that he was coming. He was the one that prepared the way for him, remember? And then suddenly John is gone from the scene, and violently so. He's been killed simply because his desire was to speak for God. That's the first news of the day. So, welcome up. Uh, uh, good morning, Jesus. Here's here's the news. Your cousin's dead. Jesus' reaction, Matthew tells us, was to withdraw. He was very busy. He had all kinds of people clamoring for his attention. People wanted healing and so on. And it says that Jesus' desire was to withdraw from the demands of his ministry. And there's thousands of people begging for his attention. And so they go across the lake, get away from the crowd. And as soon as they land, other people find him. Jesus is coming. There he is. Let's go. We've got sick people here. We've got sick family. We've got sick relatives. And, and he's the one that can do something about it. So as soon as he's stepping off the boat, when he's in grief, he's faced with these people. And how did he respond? And remember, he's bone tired. Remember that he's grieving the loss of his cousin. And what Matthew says is Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And he healed everyone that was brought to him. No matter how long it took, and it took all day, Jesus is healing people. The side of the lake there. And Jesus is now exhausted. He is personally sorrow struck by the death of his cousin. He hasn't had time to grieve. He's been busy. And yet, look what he did. At the end of this exhausting day, he realizes everybody's hungry. They can't go home. They're going to faint on the way home. They're so hungry. We've got to feed these people. 
And so they find out that they've got you know, a few fish, a few loaves of bread, and he feeds 5,000 people, maybe 10,000 people, because that was only the number of the men. Women and children are there also. And as soon as the meal is ended, okay, now I've done this, I've served people all day, I've healed people all day, I've fed this massive crowd, and he sends everybody away, he sends his disciples across the lake by boat. And he said, I've, I've got to get away. I've got to get to my father. And he goes up into the mountains by himself to pray. He desperately needed this time. That's important too. Jesus is exhausted. He's depleted. And so he prays to his father for some time. And at nightfall, after it's grown dark, comes back to the Sea of Galilee and he begins crossing it where the disciples had gone on their boats. This time he's walking on the water, demonstrating of course, his obvious power. And the disciples, as he approaches the boat, are terrified. What's this? Is this a ghost? What is this? And they realize it's Jesus. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. And so he allows Peter to have the power to walk out on the water too. And he's going fine until he starts looking at the waves instead of Jesus. You know, And he falters and he starts slipping in and Jesus has to rescue him. They both get into the boat and the obvious conclusion is made by all the disciples Lord, you are the Son of God. And they fall down and worship before him. What a day. Finally, they get to the other side of the lake. And the crowds press again. Crowds are there again. You can't get away from these people. They come in and they say, look at all our loved ones that are sick. You can heal them. And Jesus who's got a little recharge now from his father, but certainly no sleep yet, responds. And how does he respond? Verse 36. This day is concluded. This day in the life of Jesus with these words. And all who touched him were healed. All who touched him. Let me ask you this morning, have you touched Jesus? Have you? I, you might say, I've learned a lot about him. I've studied, I've read the word, I've gone to church. Have you touched Jesus? Has Jesus touched you? Have you given your troubles and your pain to Jesus? Because that's what these people did. They came up, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I'm sick, I'm dying. I've lost whatever. Jesus, touch me. It's obvious that Jesus is filled with compassion. It's obvious that his desire is to love us and to bless us. And it's obvious that he can do whatever he wants to do about our situation. So come to him. Touch him. Have you touched Jesus? If not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We're going to be singing a song together today. It's one that you know about. You know, whom shall 